Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Well, today on the show, we have a friend of mine that I've known for several years, as someone that has been deeply committed to the idea of developing other people, who has the heart of an educator, who loves the science and the neuroscience behind the craft of developing future leaders. Today, I want to introduce uh, my friend, Dr. Kevin Claypool. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nathan. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate that warm welcome. And to be honest, I tend to steal some of your neurological leadership lines and use them as if I know what I'm talking about. So thank you. Well, uh, to be clear, all of those are quotes from somebody else. I I know uh, enough not to uh, act like I know what I'm talking about. So you're quoting me and I'm quoting somebody else, so we should be okay. That's, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm game. As long as other people seem to be mildly impressed, I'm, I, I'm okay. So Dr. Claypool, tell us a little bit about your work and your career. Tell us about what you're doing currently professionally. Sure, absolutely. So I always like to say that I have an interesting career background only because it zigged and it zagged along the way. And so you know, when I first started in into my undergraduate work, I actually have a bachelor's in biblical text. And so thought for a long time that I would be in the clergy and then through a series of epiphanies and whatnot, I was like, okay, that's not really where I wanted to go. And then I graduated college with a Bible degree. And I don't know if you know this, but Bible degrees are highly sought after in the corporate world. And so I thought, well, I probably need to level up some education. And so I was fortunate enough to get a job at Abilene Christian University where I started as a residence director, right? So like the the dorm mom, dorm dad type role, but you got slapped on the wrist if you got called that. Nonetheless, while I was there, I ended up getting a master's in higher ed and conflict management. And so that started down the road for me, this love for education specifically. And so throughout that time, I knew that I wanted to kind of take that further. And so I had the opportunity to work at Pepperdine University. And so I thought, okay, I knew that that was coming. So I applied and got into their EDUL program, which I know you're very familiar with. I believe that's the same school you went to, which is actually where I met you. And so was fortunate enough to be there. And really at that point was when it kind of solidified for me that I saw the marriage between my love for wanting to help others through the avenue of education. And I knew that I didn't want to be in K through 12. And so throughout my time, I took opportunities and I had opportunities at K through 12 places where I, you know, did fundraising and whatnot. But ultimately, I kept coming back to this, I want to help adults become the best versions of who they are. And so over time, it kind of started to come into focus to where executive education and executive training is where I really wanted to be. And so you fast forward to where we are now in 2021, I am the director of leadership and learning at Anheuser-Busch here in St. Louis. And I'm charged with leading the leadership development initiatives and the learning initiatives for North America. And so that's Canada and the U.S. And so I'm fortunate to be where I am and happy to be applying some of my experiences in the world of academia here in a Fortune 500 multinational organization. You know, this whole idea of the generalist, people who have a lot of different experiences and backgrounds that allow them to, to even be more effective. That has always appealed to me. And it's been interesting to me when I really talk to leadership people who are focused on leadership development, things like that, 
that um, there tends to be a spiritual component in their lives at some point. And it might be a, a very different type of experience from one to the next. But I, uh, I find that that um, foundational piece for you of the biblical studies or biblical texts and things like that, it's interesting because a lot of people seem to have that spiritual component that goes in that. And they may not stay with it, but there was a realization that helping people made sense. And so I'm glad to hear uh, your story about how you got where you are now and now in one of the leading companies uh, in the world and trying to develop leaders there. If you could go back in time and we had a time machine, which would be an incredible thing to have, but if we had that, and you could go back when you began your career, what advice would Dr. Claypool give to just Kevin back in the beginning that might have been helpful? You know, this is going to sound cliche, but I really do mean this and I'll explain why. I would tell myself to not think small. Okay, now here's what I mean by that. There were a lot of times in my life that I would look at an individual doing something that I admired, speaking at conferences or being a keynote or being able to lead a doctoral program at a university and be the ideator behind it. And I used to always think that like, oh, someday I'll be able to do that. Just not today. And what I was doing in my head as I was, because I was fairly young when I finished my doctorate, I was 31 years old when I finished it. And so, and where like some of the folks in my cohort, like this is what, let me tell you, this is a funny moment. So we get divided up my first group into the cohort of Pepperdine. And let me tell you who's in my group. The former president of Medicare and Medicaid for California, the vice president of a missile defense company who was noted for fixing the Hubble telescope, and a gentleman who was appointed by Bill Clinton in the education administration. Here I am, 27 years old, resident director of Pepperdine University. Thank you very much, right? So it was this moment of like where I felt like I was among giants and I saw the things that they did and others. And I thought one day I'll be able to do that, but just not today. And I told myself that narrative a lot. And so the just not today moment is what I would want to eradicate from my thinking to say, you know what? Yeah, you may be 27, but that doesn't exclude your ability to contribute. You may not have a position title like anybody else, but the effectiveness of your contribution can be on par with anybody else in that space. You know, I, I really do appreciate what you're getting at there. And most people don't have those experiences where they start seeing what's happening behind the scenes and they have that moment of realization of, hey, I could do this. This is something that I'm not being arrogant about it or whatever, but I can do with the, I, 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 can, I can run with these people. And so for you to have that moment where you've not lost your sense of appreciation for what others are doing, but you start gaining an appreciation for what you're doing and you start building that momentum so when you talked about people that you looked to and maybe still look to that were people who were mentors or people who made an impact on you on your journey as a leader, I'm always curious to know who is a person or maybe have a few, but if we could focus in on just one, who is someone that you would say made an impact on your life as a leader? Oh man, there's so many, but you know, I would probably focus on one of my classmates from Pepperdine, and his name is Joe Colazzo. So Joe, if you're listening, your shout out is here. Joe was a special individual to me because when Joe saw me, he saw me for who I was, and he saw what my potential was as well. 
So he saw the heights at which he thought I could go. And what was interesting, and I didn't know this until afterwards, is he didn't give me the level of respect that I needed of from the position that I was in now. He gave me from what it could be. He treated me as if I was that top-end contributor and valued my contributions, even though I look back and I'm like, man, you were being way too kind. You know, like I was young and some of the things that I said or did was very naive. But I just, I look back on the way that he treated me and what that did for me is it gave me a space to emulate. When you're thinking about helping leaders become the best versions of who they are, I need to treat them as if they're already that version and we're just continuing to polish, right? And so I think about some of the works of like in applied positive psychology and and some of those particular spaces that when I can find out what people do well, I just bring that out and really sell it, right? And so he did that well for me. And in reflection, uh, I think he would be someone that made a huge difference in my life. And I don't know that he knows to that degree, but it was huge. Well, I appreciate the shout out. And it's it's an amazing thing. And I I do think people would be surprised by how those little actions like that of being intentional about how you interact with somebody can make such a profound difference. You know, and I say it's when you're talking, it's easy to get behind someone and and say, okay, I'm with them when it's obvious they're going to win. It's harder when it's not clear. And so I love it when people invest in someone else before that conclusion is known. So if someone comes along and says, uh, you know, Kevin's got all this potential, well, to say that now is not that big of a, of, of a leap, but to see the 27-year-old version of you and say, that's a guy that has something to offer the world, that is an incredible gift. Now, when I talk to leaders, especially younger leaders, and I think that I definitely would have been in that same category, it's almost like you thought, okay, I've got to go from one success to another success to another success. And if I ever have a misstep, then it's the end of the world. And then looking back on it, one, that was a, that was a naive way of looking at the world and a fixed mindset, the whole thing. And in fact, looking back on it, it's, it's the failures often that are the greatest teaching moments, even if you wish you didn't have them. So I like to hear about how people deal with failure because it's the side of leadership that people often don't want to talk about. When you think about your experience and you think about things that did not work, that where it was just a, it was a failure, or as you might call it, a learning experience. How did you translate failures into who you'd become today? It's a really good question. And I say that because as you were talking, I wasn't thinking about the individual like list of failures, right? What I was thinking about was like, what's the common theme between every one of my failures? Let me see if I can stumble my way through this explanation. I believe that the failures you have in life, if they're truly categorized as a failure, it is some sort of breakdown in relationship. Okay. And because what I think is like, if I have a really good boss and I've missed the mark, right? You know, we sold one less widget than we needed to sell, or we didn't make whatever training material or whatever the case may be. If I have a really good boss, and I've got a solid relationship with them, they will coach me through that moment and I will immediately see that as a learning opportunity, right? Like, yes, we we didn't make the mark, but did I fail? Like failure to me is a whole, like it's all is lost. And if you've got that effective relationship, 
all is not lost because you will be coached through that to a way that where you come out on the other side, you will have clarity on what you need to see. And so that I, when I look back at the places that I've failed, it's that I've failed to make the connection with the folks in that circle in a meaningful way. Uh, or I've let those connections deteriorate over time. And so that's where, for me, the way I think about failure is that it's based on my ability to create positive and meaningful relationships. That is great stuff. And I think that we've both had this experience of that one of the reasons why those relationships can fail is because we get stretched so thin. We're trying to serve too many people at one time and it starts to wear those relationships thin and and then you find that that's not the way to go. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So you have dedicated yourself to preparing leaders. You have dedicated a lot of money, time, heartache, trying to learn how to prepare leaders. When you think about leaders, when you think about the characteristics that they have, and this is a question that is way too specific, but I just want to get your thought on it. What is one, if you could say, what is one characteristic that you believe every leader should possess? Oh, right now that's easy for me, empathy. I believe that empathy is the most underutilized capability in any leader, especially in corporate America. Corporate America, when they hear the word empathy, unless they've had like high levels of emotional intelligence training or empathy training or empathetic leadership, whatever it may be, when they hear the word empathy, I believe that people think of them, we're going to have some sort of kumbaya session and that I have to cry with someone in order to be empathetic. You know, you and I both know that that is the, the furthest from the truth. Is high levels of emotion part of empathy? Absolutely, right? Like we talk about, at Anheuser Bush, we talk about three types of empathy cognitive empathy, compassionate empathy, and emotional empathy, right? And I categorize each one of those to be used in different settings. Emotional empathy is what I might use with my friends or my family, you know, but cognitive empathy is what I use in a leader, follower, leader, contributor situation. And compassionate empathy is what I might use in a coaching situation, right? And so for me, like if you take a definition, and this is a paraphrased one, you know, if you take the definition of empathy to see the world as others see it, if I take that and you apply that to diversity and inclusion scenarios, man, how does that change your ability to see the importance of Black History Month, the Lunar New Year, whatever it may be? And when I can start to see the world as others see it, my glasses have changed. The way I see the world changes. And so for me, I would say to any leader out there, if you want to hone in on one trait for a while, I would say empathy is that all the way. You know, it's so interesting because the the need for empathy is growing, but our ability to access that is declining. And it's one of the things that has been found during the pandemic is that executive leaders are having a harder time being able to access empathy, to imagine themselves in, in someone else's shoes or to do that because their bandwidth is so limited that they just don't have the energy needed to do the hard work of getting in someone else's shoes. Have you experienced that kind of fatigue or seen that kind of fatigue in your work? Yeah, but you know, I think the pandemic has elevated that or maybe drawn attention to it. But I think it's because we're a product of our society and our society has lost our communal tendencies. You know, our friendships now are electronic transactions. That's what they are. 
while transactions are great, but I like transactions with ATMs and grocery store checkouts. I don't, I don't like them as it relates to my friends and my family. And so when you think about like in a COVID world, the majority of our social interaction now shifted fully electronic. I can't be in the same room anymore. I can't necessarily activate my ability to socialize with one another. And when you think about, if you go back to a post or pre-COVID world, when you think about talent acquisition, right? And you're hiring individuals that are straight out of university or maybe their master's degree, they've never not had a world without social media. And they've never not had a world without computers and FaceTimes and things like that. And so they've learned relationships electronically where you take a couple of generations prior to that, they learned relationships in physical proximity of one another. And so I think that that difference is that our new front porch is FaceTime, screen time, electronics. We, you know, we actually, if you drive through new neighborhoods now, you don't see front porches built on houses because they're not a priority for anybody. Where you drive through older neighborhoods, you knew that's where life happened was on the front porch. So I think that COVID, in a COVID world, it drew attention to that. And I hope that it allowed us, I hope it smashed the pendulum so hard to that side for us that we realized how we should fix it. Because other than that, it was like scope creep. It just happened a little bit each time. I hope you're right. And I know for, for me, at least, that that is definitely a takeaway from what we've been through. I long for some of those relationships and you long for that ability to just hang out and sit. And I think that that, I hope that that is something that we see returning in significant ways. But you're kind of leading into the next question I had in mind, because you're, you're getting at the complexity of the, of the unknown, the complexity of what's coming and all these different things, which is, has always been the place where leaders spend the most time. Uh, leaders, they, they like to think about the future. They anticipate it quite a bit. So when you think about the challenges that people are facing right now, specifically leaders, what would you say the biggest challenge facing leaders today would be? Oh, man. Whew. You know, this is just my opinion. And this may be a little bit controversial. I think it's fighting ego. I believe that we have trained people in an everybody gets a ribbon society, that that mentality strikes a chord within me. If I'm that person that I believe I deserve a lot, that I couldn't move up fast enough in a company. I can't get enough accolades from my boss. You couldn't give me too many growth projects, right? I'm using air quotes here if you could see me. And so when I look at that, like that creates an ego-driven leadership style. And I think that we have to spend a lot of time deconstructing egos to make sure people don't assume they have the right idea and that they're getting what they want rather than being open to what they need. I talk a lot about that when we facilitate design thinking. We talk about a lot of times our ideas are the things that we want intrinsically, but the reality is what we want and what we need may be totally two different things and the gap between those, some people aren't willing to travel. And so to me, I think the biggest thing that leaders fight against now, or to answer your question, would be ego. You know, it's interesting to me for those listening in who have a background in some of this, Dr. Claypool just gave an example of what it means to have the compassion that is connected to the empathy that he was discussing earlier. 
And so when you, when you look at that idea of having compassion about what somebody is pursuing in their life, there's this idea that people either coach for compliance or they coach for compassion. So if I'm coaching to compliance, I'm trying to get you into this box that you're supposed to be in and why won't you get in there? And so I'm, I'm coaching into compliance. The other way of doing it, which is much healthier, is to coach for compassion. But the word compassion in that moment is more of that empathetic connection of what are you really wanting or needing in life versus what does everybody want for you? And so to your point, mm -hmm. that ego is a checklist when you're being pushed into that world of compliance. Do it this way, you know, one, two, three, four, five. And what you're describing is tell me about the life that you want because you may not need a lot of this stuff. Is that close at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like we always – here recently we've been on this discussion at Anheuser-Busch where we talk about the difference between training for competence or confidence. And you'll find this fascinating. We did this survey. There was two sections of it. Basically, it says, hey, we're going to assess and find out what your opportunities or weaknesses are, right? And then the other section was like, hey, you could self-identify any of these areas you want to learn on, right? Well, when we looked at our scores, our highest score was change management. It's like, hey, man, y'all are winning. Like, you got it. But then when you looked at the places where we could self-identify, we self-identified that we wanted training in change management. Change management was winning in both sections. And what that told me is that we know the competence, but we haven't been given the space to practice. We, haven't, we don't have that sandbox. So our confidence is so low, we're asking for more. And so that led me to start to ideate around a training model that had two steps that we trained on competence first and that we followed up by formulating confidence. And so to go back to what you were just mentioning, I think all of those things go hand in hand to where I don't need to give you what you think you need. I need to give you or what I don't need to give you what you want, but rather I need to give you what you need. And to find that out takes time process, assessment, coaching, mentoring, all the above. Well, you, you're getting back to the heart of the educator. I um, taught university classes for over 20 years and have stacks and stacks and stacks of evaluations. And I have always felt that tension of you could be a more popular teacher if you would do this, but you would not be serving your students well if you did. And so there's that mm -hmm. tension of do I go with the ego moment of getting the better evaluation or do I go with the loving moment, the compassionate mm. moment, the empathetic moment, the, you know, whatever you want to fill in there, because I care enough about someone else to be uncomfortable for their, on their, on their, for, the, for, their, for their future. And it sounds like to me what you're talking about is the heart of an educator. I'm willing to create that tension so that you may not love what we're doing right now, but you're going to love the result of it later. Oh, man, I had a moment like that in my undergrad work. I had missed several days of class for touring for the school, right? I was doing some admission stuff or whatnot. Well, I thought I was just exempt. I didn't have to follow the absence policy in one of my professor's classes. And, and his policy said that it was like, for every day you miss, you owe three pages of notes on the PowerPoint that he posted. Well, it was in the year and he was like, hey, you've got to be in the class, but I'm failing you. And I'm like, what? Like, I had this, like, gasp of, like, no, this can't happen. Like, I had a state of panic and started sweating. And he's like, you didn't give me the nine pages for the three days you missed. And he's like, you have two hours, and if you can get them to me, I'll, you'll go pass. So I, like, run back to the dorm room, 
I type these nine. Now, mind you, if I could look back at the typing, it would probably look like someone fell asleep on their keyboard and then just whatever came out, that's what I did. Well, I'm like sweating it. I do something the best I can. There's probably a little cut and paste going on, I'm sure, you know, to try to get to the nine pages. So I go to the office, I turn it in and he grabs the paper and he looks at it. He thumbs through it and counts the pages and then just throws them in the trash. And he looks at me and he says, have integrity in what you agree to. You knew this from the very beginning. He's like, you knew it all the way through and you just hoped that I wouldn't notice. He's like, know that people notice your commitments. And it was a huge moment for me. And I'll never forget that. And so that was a great moment for me. It is so hard to find people who care enough about you to do that. And to throw that away yep. in front of you was not a moment of drama. It was meant to make it a memorable teaching moment. And I love that he took the risk and I love that you accepted it. And that that's been one of those things that you look back on and think, that's the kind of guy I want to be. I want to be the kind of person, the kind of leader that is saying, I am the kind of person that fulfills my commitments whenever I can. That's good. It's really good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think about it. I, I think I heard it was on, it was on a presidential documentary. I was actually on Bill Clinton's documentary from PBS and they asked the question or they were pontificating that someone had asked Bill Clinton the question of how many second chances does somebody deserve? Mm -hmm. And the narrator said, well, as many as you'll let me have, you know, and I know that all of us have been given second chances in our life. And that was one of them for me. And it's like, if you're presented with it, you better run and you better run as fast as you can to take that opportunity. Well, good for you for taking that to heart and good for him for having the heart of an educator. That's, that's really good stuff. So uh, as we're moving into the last part of our, our time, and I so appreciate your time, I know that right now specifically you've got so much going on and I've had the privilege of working with a lot of people at you know, large companies that do what you do, but you do something very unique. You're not just planning what should be done and dreaming about the future. You're also in the trenches providing the very direct coaching training kind of moment. And I, um, <laughs> I think you're insane uh, for doing that at the level that you do it, but I really respect and appreciate the fact that you are. And I uh, would just say that to those listening in, Dr. Claypool's time is really um, a precious commodity. And so thank you for sharing it with us today. So the last couple of questions, what advice would you give someone that's going into leadership for the first time, because it's not just the skill set shift for most people. It's often that identity shift that goes with it. What advice would you give to them? I would tell them that, and this is, I think I would tell them this advice because this is what I see a lot is sometimes your eagerness to lead comes across as arrogance. And so just know that any of your strengths of what got you to where you are today, if, and when overplayed, they will most certainly become your greatest weakness. And so be cautious of the things you're really good at because those at some point can be misinterpreted. And so this is your opportunity to, you, you've used those to get you to where you are, continue to use those for when you need them, but use this as an opportunity to flex and develop new muscles. If you're an emerging leader, rewind what he just said and listen to it again, because what he's just given you is a sifted out gold. And what he's really talking about is you take a, um, a strength and you apply that beyond that 85th percentile for most people. And it goes from being a strength to actually being a weakness. And so you take that desire, that passion to make a difference, to be a leader, 
and you keep pushing it and it goes from from being passionate and ambitious to exactly what he's describing. And it's so disorienting because it's a strength. But if you would just dial it back, it's like the person trying to hit the golf ball too hard. By slowing down, you actually hit it farther. And I want you to listen to what Dr. Claypool just said, because that is a really helpful advice. You know, that statement for me, I actually think about that probably once a week. And it stems from a moment in my undergrad. There was this quote that I heard that says, we tell ourselves stories in order to exist. And so for me, I live life from story to story, right? I I love stories and I know you do too. That's a key element of your ability to connect with people so well is that you tell stories. But I was graduating with my undergrad and I wanted to continue being at my undergraduate institution. So I applied for this job, went through the interview process, found out I didn't get it. And so I went and met with the individual who was the hiring manager and I said, hey, I just want to know why I didn't get the job. I'd like to know, right? Here I am like over arrogant 22 year old coming out of college. And she said, look, like you were great. Like, and to be honest, she's like, we thought that competently you were the best fit. She's like, but your ability to speak and to be confident in the room makes people nervous and they feel like they can't contribute because you are a bulldozer. And so my ability and confidence to be able to speak in public or to someone else, I quickly turned into a great public speaker to a bulldozer. And that shift, it's funny because I actually consider it like I saw myself shape into this like Tonka trunk bulldozer and you just look back and you can see the destruction that you cause. And so that moment for me was very real. And so that's where that advice stems from. Well, thank you for giving us the backstory on that. And I think a lot of leaders are nodding their head in agreement because they can see themselves in that. So one of the things we want to be able to do is to be an encouragement to people because leadership, as difficult as people think it is, it's worse than that. And it is a challenging thing to be a leader, especially if you care deeply about other people. And so I find that people are constantly looking for resources, insights that might help them become a more effective leader. You've talked about continuing your education you pursued, and you mentioned it earlier, the EDOL, that's the Doctorate of Education in Organizational Leadership, if anyone's interested in that program at Pepperdine. But you went on to pursue these graduate degrees and things like that. What would be some resources that you would recommend to people who are wanting to become a better leader? That could be from a podcast all the way to pursuing uh, formal education. Sure. Yeah. So I think that number one, like there is so much information at your fingertips that you could spend a lifetime and not exhaust the YouTubes, the TED Talks, you know, free library resources that you can get into books, uh, you know, get there. Right. And so find, use that as a way to test the water, find out what you're interested in. The other thing I would tell you is that I look at the higher education market. And I know that getting a doctorate is not for everyone. Getting a master's isn't for everyone. But I'll tell you that there are some phenomenal six-week, eight-week, 24-week, whatever-week graduate or educate or executive certificate programs that would allow you to go and become a specialized individual whether it's project management, neurological leadership, conflict management, it doesn't matter. You can find an opportunity to get what you need at an economical price and feel empowered to contribute. Because what I believe is this, and you know this, like if I ask you the question, what did you learn during your doctorate? Well, it's like one, that's a hard question to answer. And you might say something to the effect of, I now realize everything I don't know. The world became so much bigger in that space. 
So, but it did give me one thing. It gave me confidence to contribute in a more meaningful way from a position of, did I know something, right? And so I think any of these certificate programs that allows you to do that, it will give you a pedestal to stand on to be able to contribute with some sort of authority to where like you're becoming that subject matter expert. And so whether you're finding that through an executive ed program or you've watched every TED Talk video or YouTube video on project management, you can talk to that moment by just engaging in what you're passionate about. And so I'd say find your passion, find the avenue that fits you both for your time, money, and space, and then go for it. Very practical stuff. And please listen to that. Of um, th This is not one of those academic hazing things of you got to go do this or that. He's talking about how do I get the most bang for my buck by being able to be around people who are passionate about their field and about their topics. And then they really help you get the most out of it, whether that be um, something online that you can watch with a TED Talk all the way to these other things. Dr. Claypool, we are so grateful for your time. If you all are on LinkedIn, check out what's going on with Kevin Claypool and connect with him on LinkedIn, unless you're trying to sell him something and then then don't because <laughs> I think we have enough people who are doing that. So if you're looking just to connect and follow along with people who are trying to make a difference, I hope you will do that with Kevin. For the rest of our time, I just want to express to those who are listening in how grateful I am for your decision to be a leader and how important it is to have people who are willing to be leaders, which includes being willing to do what Kevin's doing and others, which is to invest in the lives of others so that they can also be more effective leaders. Kevin, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. No, Nathan, thank you. I appreciate the, the opportunity to be here and to share a little bit about my story. And, and I hope to, um, you know, and I've, and I've listened to your podcast already. And so I enjoy hearing the stories of others. And so um, I'm glad to be part of the legacy. So thank you. Well, thank you. It is the job of leaders to set the pace, to set the tone, to be the people who are trying to be intentional the best they can to be the kinds of people who are looking for an opportunity to serve, to make a difference. And so today, as you listen to this podcast, know that you're not alone and know that what you do matters, even if it's a small thing, like being a classmate and recognizing another classmate that has some capacity and treating them in a way that might inspire them to pursue more. So grateful that you've been a part of the Strata Leadership Show. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing what you're doing in future episodes. Have a great day.